Hello, and welcome back to Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Several listeners suggested that I introduce myself a little bit, so I want to tell you that in my early 20s, I worked for the World Union of Jewish Students based in London, where I served as their so-called Minister of Education and Culture. Slightly later, I worked for a think tank called the Center for the Study of Federalism in Jerusalem, and then I joined the U.S. Foreign Service, where I traveled the world for 21 years. Now, simultaneously, I've been leading Jewish groups on so-called Jewish heritage tours since 1972, and now that is basically my full-time occupation. However, with the pandemic, can't do much traveling, so I've decided to take you on a virtual tour, and our destination this week is the country of Montenegro. So the first problem with Montenegro is nobody knows where it is, and that's because it's in the Balkans where borders and country names change frequently. Winston Churchill once quipped that the Balkans have always produced more history than they could consume, and that's probably a true thing. So let me try to describe for you where Montenegro is. Its immediate neighbor to the south is Albania. To the north, it's a little tiny coastal strip of Croatia, to which it's tied by a narrow road. In fact, if you fly into the Dubrovnik airport and you turn right as you leave the airport, in about 20 or 30 minutes, you're in the center of old Dubrovnik. If you turn left... You're at the border with Montenegro in even less time. Another way to view Montenegro is if you get in a boat in Venice at the top of the Adriatic Sea and you sail south, so Italy is on your right the whole time. On your left is Slovenia, Croatia, a little tiny part of the Bosnian coastline, then more of Croatia, then Montenegro, and then Albania. But Montenegro is even more complicated than the Balkans in general, and not only because of its geography. It was never really an easy country to govern because it has mountainous uplands, highlands, which were ruled by local tribes, basically, for many, many centuries. And only the coastal strip, which at some point is only two or three miles deep in from the sea, was governed by other empires. The Romans long ago, then the Byzantines, then eventually the Ottomans, etc., etc. So this diversity makes a lot of Montenegrin characters seem larger than life, and it makes Montenegrin history seem incredibly convoluted. Since... I don't expect that many of you know much about Montenegrin history. I'm going to give you a really swift course so that you have at least a chance of understanding something about the diversity and the lack of continuity of the history of the Jewish community of Montenegro. So in truly ancient times, Montenegro was inhabited by a tribe called the Illyrians, who basically lived all up and down the eastern coast of the Adriatic Sea. Then, at least coastal Montenegro was conquered by the expanding Greek Empire, which in turn was conquered by the Roman Empire. And Montenegro 
as we know it today, was part of the Roman province of Dalmatia until about the 9th century. And then it split into a bunch of small independent principalities until late in the 15th century. From 1496 to 1878, most of Montenegro was under Ottoman rule, but part and an important part, touristically and scenically, and most important, Jewishly, was under Venetian rule. So I mentioned earlier that Venice sits at the top of the Adriatic Sea. What I didn't mention was that for many centuries, Venice was an imperial power. It had a mercantile empire that not only controlled the whole Adriatic, but extended to one degree or another as far as Constantinople, where Venice always maintained a strong presence, even if it was not in control. These seaports as was the case since Roman times, every major trading port in the Mediterranean had a Jewish community. And the, the ports that were controlled by Venice built strikingly beautiful fortifications, churches, public buildings, so that the coastal towns all up and down the Adriatic look like Dubrovnik, even if they're not as well known. They're incredibly beautiful. And some of the Venetian coastal towns in Montenegro are far more beautiful than Dubrovnik. They're just not as well known, strangely. They ought to be. And I'm talking about Herzegnovi, Budva, and particularly Kotor. The old capital of independent Montenegro was a place called Setinje, which had a U.S. embassy in the late 19th century, believe it or not, and Cetinia and its immediate vicinity were largely independent from 1515 till 1851. The precursor of modern Yugoslavia was founded at the end of World War I, and Montenegro was part of that entity, Yugoslavia, by a whole series of names from 1918 to 1992 when the former Yugoslavia split up as a result of a series of civil wars. Montenegro nonetheless chose to remain in a federation with Serbia from 1992 until 2006, when in a peaceful re referendum, they narrowly opted for independence from Serbia. Kotor, which is probably the most beautiful town on the entire Mediterranean coast, always had at least some Jewish community, to the point that in its general cemetery, there's an area of land reserved specifically for Jewish graves. Uh, the community there today is very small. The story of modern Montenegrin Jewry is really quite miraculous, and it will strain your credulity, and I promise to get to it quite soon. The most immediate link between this week's episode and last week's is the town of Ulcin, which, again, it's a town nobody's ever heard of. It's in the extreme southern point of the Montenegrin coast near the Albanian border, and probably 75% of its population is ethnically and linguistically Albanian. What's its role in Jewish history? Well, first of all, the man who was the very troublesome false messiah that we talked about last week when we were focusing on Thessaloniki, moved to Ulcin in order to die. 
So he was possibly the most famous Jew who ever lived in Ulzin, although all he really did there was die. But Ulzin has quite a unique distinction in that it was the piracy capital of the Adriatic for several centuries. And by early modern history, let's say the middle of the 17th century, it became a slave trade center. Originally, the slaves who were sold there were slaves captured up and down the Adriatic coast, both in Italy and in Dalmatia. But eventually, the demand for slaves from Africa grew. So by the late 18th century, there was a strong Afro-Albanian population in Ulzin, because ultimately these slaves who were bought and sold in Europe were eventually freed, and some of them decided to stay in Ulzin, where they frequently intermarried with the local population. The last pure-blooded Afro-Albanian was a guy named Rizo Shurla, who died in 2003. And if you go to Ultim today, you no longer see people who are visibly African, although a lot of the people you'll see will be sort of the child or the grandchild of someone who was originally African. Now, a friend of mine who was recently U.S. ambassador in Montenegro told me that he just read, and he was questioning the veracity of this, that there was no Jewish community in Montenegro until 2011. So I want to comment on that, because in one sense, that's a true statement. When I worked for the World Union of Jewish Students back in the 70s, I frequently dealt with the head of the Federation of Jewish Communities of Yugoslavia, which at the time included Serbia, Montenegro, Macedonia, Bosnia, Croatia, and Slovenia, and also two autonomous regions, both of which play a role in our story. One of the regions is called the Vojvodina, and it's the area between Belgrade and the Hungarian border, which used to be Austro-Hungarian when Belgrade was ruled by the Ottomans. That part of what is what was Yugoslavia was ruled by the Habsburgs. And also Kosovo, which until fairly recently in history was part of the Ottoman Empire, but the Serbs view as their spiritual homeland. And according to some people in the world, Kosovo is now an independent state. According to others, it's not. Uh, this is a very sensitive subject, but Kosovo is one of the countries which borders Montenegro. So it plays a role in our story for that reason. The modern Jewish community was constituted in 2011, and less than a year later, in 2012, Judaism was finally recognized as a fourth official religion by the government of Montenegro. Now, there were several characters who played a key role in this transformation from a country where I was told repeatedly in the, in the 1970s by people who were in a position to know, don't bother visiting Montenegro, there are no Jews there. And at all the pan-Yugoslav Jewish events I went to, whether it was a summer camp or Maccabiada or anything else, all the republics except Montenegro were in fact represented. So I had no reason to question the claim of the national headquarters 
of the Federation of Jewish Communities of Yugoslavia that there were no Jews in Montenegro. But, thank God, somebody did question that claim. The man's name was Yasha Alfandari, and he is a larger-than-life character who unfortunately went to meet his maker in 2018. Yasha was born in Subotica, which is in that region I just described called the Vojvodina, in 1946. He moved to Israel in 1967 to volunteer for the Six-Day War, and then he stayed and spent most of his adult life working for the Israeli intelligence services, where he learned skills that would come in handy when he decided to return to Montenegro to take care of his aging mother in 1991. Now, you may ask, why did somebody from Subotica return to Montenegro? And the answer is that before and during World War II, a lot of Jews living in the Vojvodina thought that they would do better under Italian occupation than German occupation, and that their chances of surviving the war were much greater, which was in fact true. Montenegrin and Albanian peasants, basically, helped to hide Jews, and a huge percentage of Jews in those two countries, which were never very big Jewish communities to begin with, but very few of them actually perished during the war. Yasha was an example of a family that moved from the Vojvodina to Montenegro. And when he returned and buried his mother, he decided to use the skills he had learned in Israel to find Jews, to ferret them out, to find people who had a Jewish parent or a Jewish grandparent and bring them into a community, to create a community organization where really none had existed for centuries. And he did this work painstakingly, but successfully, so that over the course of 20 years, he did create a modern, structured Jewish community of Montenegro, and he even attracted a rabbi, who's a fabulously kind, energetic, actually American Chabad rabbi, born and raised in Los Angeles, who has an equally kind and energetic wife, who's a great teammate of his, and a countless number of children, who together really have breathed life into these dry bones. Uh, the remarkable thing about this phenomenon is that officially there are probably still no more than a couple of hundred Jews in the entire country. And this particular Chabad rabbi is the only rabbi within hundreds of miles. So officially, he's the chief rabbi of Montenegro, but he's also the only rabbi of Montenegro. And I asked him recently, I said, so tell me, are there any communities in Montenegro which are large enough to produce a minion? And his answer was, after a moment of reflection, not yet. I said, what do you mean by not yet? He said, well, here's the thing. There are a lot of Jews here who don't know they're Jewish or who know that they had a Jewish parent or grandparent but learned nothing about Yiddishkeit when they were children. So he gave me two examples, which I will share with you because they're very revealing examples. He's standing in a grocery store checkout line waiting to pay the cashier, and he's dressed in full Chabad regalia, long black coat, black hat, big beard. Only a complete idiot would fail to recognize that he was a rabbi. The cashier, who's wearing a big crucifix around her neck, says in sort of a half whisper, 
are you a rabbi? He said, yeah, why? She said, I'm a Rosenberg. Oh, tell me about your family. Well, this was a woman whose family had come from Voivodina in order to survive the war. And he asked if she had much family in Montenegro. She said, about 200. So (laughs) there's like a new found trove of 200 Jews. Another example he gave me was a senior diplomat in Montenegro who is Muslim and whose wife is Jewish, also from the Vojvodina. And he asked her if she had any family in Montenegro. She said, at least 30 or 40 on the Jewish side. So little by little, he's uncovering a community, making community events, teaching by example, how to observe the Sabbath, how to observe Passover. He gives people kits. He's amazingly proactive. And I would say that although it may have been true in the 1970s that there was no structured Jewish community in Montenegro, it clearly was not the case that there were no Jews there. And now that they are forming themselves into a community with a lot of support and recognition and positive assistance from the government in many ways, they seem to be almost resurrected. It's the only community I know of in the whole Jewish world where you could use that term, that this Jewish community, which was once consigned to the ash heap of history, is now coming back to life in a beautiful, vibrant, very sweet way, thanks to a couple of superheroes whose names should be long remembered. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Bye for now.